you'd take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, this week, uh, Sammy Rhodes, a uh, campus minister at uh, RUF campus minister at South Carolina, uh, posted an article online where uh, he titled it, uh, Perseverance Wins Over Zeal Every Time. Now, I really like that article and I really love the title. And uh, he, he said he got it from a friend who said, if I could ever create a Christian bumper sticker, that's the one it would be. Now, I don't want to tell you all that he said. I think you could search for it and find it and you'd be glad that you read it. Uh, but the idea, uh, perseverance wins over zeal every time, is really deeply embedded in, in the ways that we want to teach our children. It's one of the famous stories of the tortoise and the hare, the perseverance. Is the key. And that's built into Philippians. Uh, one of those key passages that uh, really ought to be something that you think about a lot and hide in your hearts. Philippians 1.6 That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so uh, that thought helps govern what we're thinking about in this section. Uh, and we want to ask the question, well if God's going to help us persevere, if he's going to bring to completion the work he started, what does that perseverance look like in life? That's what we're going to see today. Before we look in the words, let's ask God to bless the time we spend in the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, in each prayer, we acknowledge our dependence on you. So now we pray with our hearts recognizing our dependence. Would you help us see uh, the truth of your scriptures? to understand them, to apply them to our lives, to be changed because of them. We want to see what Christ is like as a Savior and how He is at work in our lives and how we can walk with Him. Would you give us eyes to see Christ? Would you bless your church for Christ's sake? We pray in His name. Amen. Our focus will be from Philippians 1, beginning in verse 9, but we're going to read starting in verse 3. Philippians 1, verse 3. This is God's Word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. It's completely true and utterly trustworthy. There's a, a decent chance you won't remember the name Derek Redman, but you might remember his 15 minutes of fame. Derek Redman, when he was 19, broke the British record for the 400 meters and became a track superstar in the United Kingdom. He represented the UK in the Olympics in 1988 in Seoul, South Korea. And uh, unfortunately, he was dealing with an Achilles tendon problem and he was hoping that he could still run, but 10 minutes before the first heat in the 400 meters, his race, uh, he knew he couldn't and he had to withdraw. 
Now, the Olympics are only once every four years. It's the biggest event. To withdraw from it meant it was serious, and it was. It took five surgeries to repair what was wrong with Derek Redmond's Achilles tendon. But by the next Olympics, 1992, in Barcelona, he was back in form and representing the UK again, again in the 400 meters. And in the first heat, uh, he set the best time of the field. In the second heat, the quarterfinals, he won his heat. He was in good shape to make the finals and probably to medal. In the semifinals, he was leading his race again. When 175 meters from the end, he heard the distinctive pop and he had torn his hamstring. About three more steps of you know, hobbling pain, he collapsed on the, on the race. And everyone passed him and went on to finish the race. And the medical team comes out and brings the stretcher to carry him off. But this is his last Olympics. He's determined to finish this race. So he waves them off and he gets up and he begins to hobble in, in what is obviously excruciating pain. And I, I can't remember for sure, but it seems like he even fell again and got himself back up. Now, all this is happening on TV as you're watching it from a distance and you're thinking, this is going to be a great story. What you don't see is that Derek Redmond's father was there and he was up in the top of the, of the, of the stadium, 65,000 people watching and he begins to run down the stairs, shoving people out of the way, dodging others. He leaps over the, the, the barrier between the stands and the, and the uh, racetrack area. The security guards are chasing him down. He's avoiding them and yelling back to them, that's my son and I'm going to him. And as he runs out there, he gets to his son. And this is the first time you see on TV. And he puts his arm around his waist, pulls his son's arm over his shoulders. And Derek just puts his head on his dad's shoulder, begins to cry. Now, hang on a second. This is where I get a little teary. Okay. And so uh, they go the rest of the way with his father essentially carrying him, uh, limp and unable to finish. Because, you know, a lot of you are parents. You get that sentiment. You understand what's going through the father's mind. He says, this is my son. I love him. My affection's too strong for him to see him out there. I'm going to help. And of course, that's what he does. Walks with him all the way up to the finish line. And with about a step and a half to go, the father lets him go so he can finish the race by himself. And then the son collapses in his father's arms and is carried off by a stretcher. From an Olympic standpoint, he got help in finishing the race and it's listed as a did not finish. But it was probably the one thing that happened in the 1992 Olympics that a lot of people still remember. It was an amazing story. It was part of the, you know, uh, things that they would show at the end as highlights of the Olympics. The, the honor to the human spirit. The International Olympic Committee continues to bring out that as an example of what the Olympics really are about. Uh, Derek Riven became part of Nike commercials and Gatorade commercials because of his great story. It was a great story because a father said, I love him too much to just let him not finish. I'm going to help him along. I want you to see that's just an ordinary story that's a reflection of what's going on in Philippians. You might say that verse 6 is what God is saying to you. I love you too much not to let you finish. And so he comes along and assists you at every way, every point, promising what I have started, I will bring to completion. And Paul kind of gives us some senses of what that's like. He says of himself, I thank my God 
in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. So I thank God and remember you with joy. And later on, he says that that God is my witness in verse 8. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. With an affection that comes from Christ and is like Christ. Here you go, Paul has got some pretty beautiful sentiments that are directed toward the Philippian church. Thanksgiving, joy, affection. Surely you wouldn't think, though, that Paul loves the Philippian church more than God does. What you see in Paul is a tiny reflection of God's attitude toward the Philippian church. And not just the Philippian church, but you. Thanksgiving, joy, and affection. And that's why God says, I'm not going to just start something and leave you to it. I'm going to bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Because his affection, his joy is strong in you. Now, this is really slightly off the subject of the of this rest of the sermon. But I do want to say this, especially to elders, but really to anyone who's in authority and has the, the task of helping people grow. So that's parents and teachers and, and employers. I want you to see what Paul says is, what, what governs how God helps you grow and what has infected Paul in the way he wants to help the Philippian church and you grow. It's thanksgiving, it's joy and affection. If you want to elder shepherd the church well, foster thanksgiving in your heart for the church, foster joy in the people of the church, and develop affection for the church. That's the way it works. And, and parents, if you want to help your children grow, be thankful for them, enjoy them, and show them affection. If you want to be a boss who helps your employers grow, thanksgiving and joy and affection, this is God's way uh, to, to grow people. And in verse 9 through 11, you see Paul praying for this church. And it's really him saying, because I'm thankful, because I have joy in you, and because I have affection for you, these are the things I want for you. And he prays. First, in verse 9, it is my prayer that you, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he wants them to have love that's shaped by knowledge and discernment. But that's not the goal he has. It's not just he says, I want you to love and have knowledge and discernment, but I want you to have love, knowledge, and discernment so that, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. I want you to be able to recognize the things that are really excellent and the things that really don't matter. That's what he's really saying. I don't want you to be caught up in the things that uh, that are really insignificant for you to major on those. You know, that's always a temptation. We we want to say to somebody, hey, don't sweat the small stuff. Major on the majors. Don't get lost in the things that don't matter. Pay attention to the things that do. You know, we might say. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether all the meals get done on time, but it matters more the attitude you have as you're sitting around the table eating together, right? You, you get the idea. But Paul says that's really something he wants for you is what is excellent, not what doesn't matter. Uh, I remember my mom uh, changed her parenting style pretty drastically from the first child, uh, which I didn't get to see. I, I trust her word on this. Down to us and then to my little brother, five or, or six years after me. 
And, and she would tell you, the reason is, I got all worried and stressed out about stuff that didn't matter with my first child. But I realized some things that didn't matter, and it let her enjoy my little brother. And he turns out to be the most well-balanced of us all, uh, which is good. But the picture here is, is, is what happens. We learn what matters and what doesn't, what's excellent and what doesn't. But Paul says you can't get to what is excellent unless you have these other qualities of love, knowledge, and discernment. That your love with knowledge and discernment is growing and abounding in the world, in your life. That's the way to get to what is excellent. That's the path. So how does that work? Love isn't hard. We're familiar with that. It's the most common command in all the Bible is to love. And it means commitment and and uh, and sacrifice and but what happens is we tend to to think of love as something that's emotional and sentimental and 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 that is a part of love it really is but it's not the whole thing so love comes comes as an acceptance a, a a willingness to accept a person and to encourage them as they are and that's the way the world wants us to love the world you know, uh, Christianity is about love. We'll hear from those. And when Christians take some kind of moral stand based on the Bible, the world says, but you're becoming judgmental. As if love is only acceptance and toleration. Listen to what Tim Keller says. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. I think that's a great picture of why we need love and knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment are like the, the structure and the boundaries for love. Or if you want to think of it like this, love is the, is the fleshy body. Knowledge and discernment are the skeleton and the muscles that make it go and give it structure and support and make it what it really is. True love has both qualities, the acceptance and affection, but also the, the truth and the knowledge that make it work. It's not just sentimentality, but it's also the love that says, I want what is best for you. And here's what happens. As that kind of love and knowledge and discernment grow in your life, you start to recognize what really matters in life. You start to say, you know what? It probably doesn't matter so much what vehicle I'm driving. It matters how I treat my neighbors. It doesn't matter so much, uh, you know, the amount of income I'm making. It matters more, do I love my children? It matters less uh, about whether or not I get my way about recreations and pleasures. It matters more, am I serving my spouse? You, you get the idea. What you come to discover is what is excellent is what enables you to, to love people and to enjoy God. That's what really makes excellence in life. That's why you can't recognize it without love and knowledge and discernment growing in your life. And so Paul prays that you would come to see what really matters in life, what's really significant and excellent. If you want to hear John Piper put it in a a more profound and striking way from his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He titles this paragraph, An American Tragedy, How Not to Finish Your One Life. And in it, he, said, he describes an article he read in Reader's Digest of a couple 
that became financially well off and took early retirement. He at 59 and she was 51. They moved to the coast in Florida, bought a 30-foot boat, and began to uh, spend the days enjoying their life, you know, with all of its luxuries and uh, collecting shells. That was their pastime. Here's what he says. Uh, he, he hoped it was, uh, he, at first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? This is a tragedy and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace the tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. His point is, if you come to self-love, if you come to think that my arriving and achieving and acquiring and my uh, pleasures are what govern things, that self-love, then you will end up chasing after things that evaporate and are indifferent and insignificant. It's not wrong to enjoy a boat or to collect shells. But when that becomes the thing you do with life, then you've missed what's excellent. He would go on to say that there is one thing that's excellent. There's one thing that's eternal. It is the Word of God and people. Two things. The Word of God and people that will last forever. And investing in those are what is excellent. And it's experienced by love and knowledge and discernment. But he doesn't want it to stop at you gaining affection for people governed by what you know. It has to produce fruit in your life. Look at verse 10. After you approve what is excellent, that is so you could be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Here, his vision for you is a pure life. Pure here means singularly devoted. Blameless is one that is a life without offense. And that all is to describe a life that's full of righteousness, full of the fruit of righteousness. Now, if Paul had wanted to say, once your life to be full of righteousness that, that Christ gives you, that's what he would have said, that you're full of righteousness that's from Christ. But he said he's full of the fruit of righteousness. And the fruit in the Bible is always that sign of life, the sign that things are there. It's how you know a good tree from a bad one. The tree that has fruit on it and is producing what it's supposed to. That's a healthy tree. And so he's saying, you, you gain love, knowledge, and discernment that leads you to a life that is singularly devoted to pursuing God, pure and blameless, without offense. And it produces in you a life that is marked by evidence, fruit of that righteousness. A life that shows the graciousness of God that you've received. A life that shows the righteousness that God has clothed you with. A life that shows the character that God is producing in you. A life that shows how you live for hope in an eternal kingdom that you're a pilgrim here, a life that bears those marks apart from coming to church. Does 
the truth of the gospel show up in the way that you think? Does it give you some ability to control the words that you say? Does it shape what you want to say? Does it show up in the way that you spend your time and your money? That's precisely what he's saying he wants to happen. That is, you gain good sense about love and discernment and knowledge as you understand the doctrines of the faith and gain understanding from the scriptures. Does it then lead into the life of practice? Um, in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan deals with this very thing. Christian and faithful are walking along and a third companion comes along whose name is Talkative. And Christian warns faithful not to be, you know, to be deceived by his words, but to recognize where his heart is. Go up and talk to Talkative about the experience of the gospel and he will probably run away. And sure enough, Faithful goes to talk to Talkative and he says, let's talk about the power of the gospel. And uh, Talkative is all for it. What is the power of the gospel? First, it shows up in your life by crying out against sin. And Faithful says, yeah, but what about really abhorring sin in your life? Having an attitude that's directed and having it reach to your heart. And Talkative is offended. Because he had really good doctrine. He had really good insights. He could talk with the best of them. But it was supposed to get deeper to where it began to change the very things he felt about life. Does your faith change the way you feel about things? The way you think and the way you speak and the way you act? I had a, a seminary professor uh, who was telling us what his seminary professor taught him. Every time you preach a sermon, I want you to imagine me sitting on the back row my hand folded over like this, saying, all right, so what? So what? Why do I need to know this? Because there's something that's not right when we can gain good doctrine and good understanding, but it doesn't change the way we think and act and speak. It's meant to go from the head through the heart to the mouth and the hands. And Paul prays that very thing for you. That God, as he gives you love and knowledge and discernment, wouldn't let it stop there. That it would produce some visible marks in your life. Because his greatest goal was not your self-advancement, um, your self-potential being realized. What he wanted more than anything else was at the end of verse 11, the last thing he prays for. That as you are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. He wants your life to be driven by this one focus because there isn't anything more excellent. It's that the things that you do and say would lead people to praise and give glory to God because of their experience of you. That would lead to angels being able to say, look at the great work God has accomplished in this person. Look at the, the way that he has remade his image so that it's becoming visible in this person. L look at the generosity they show. That wasn't in them a few years ago. God is producing that in them. So that all of God's creatures would be able to say, because of what God has done in your life, look how beautiful. It's what you were made to do to reflect him and to bring glory and honor to him. And that's precisely 
what Paul prays for. And anything short of that is really an, an, an idol, an idolatry. You know, we can pursue righteous living and generosity because it makes us feel better about ourselves. And by the way, I think if, if what God is doing in us is, is described here in Philippians, it ought to make you feel better about yourself in some ways. I don't think that feeling is all wrong. But when that's the chief reason, when the chief reason that we want to become more righteous and more generous, when we want to become more loving is because it would make me feel a little better of myself, there are hundreds of self-help books that will give you good techniques about that. On the radio, there's a, a guy who promises a, a DVD that if you get it and follow his instructions, you can have more obedient children in just eight minutes. And every time I hear it, I think, I wonder if it would help me. Not with my kids, but me, becoming obedient. I just want to know what his techniques are. But every time I hear it, I also think, if I can do it in eight minutes, and it works every time, I won't need to trust God anymore. And that gives me pause. And I can go find a bunch of self-help books that will make me learn how to develop techniques to be more kind, maybe more helpful. And they're not all bad. But if I can do it without having to trust God, without Him having to do anything, then what I've really done is created an idol. And it's me being better. But rather, Paul says, here's what I want for you. I want you to see how affectionate God is for you, that he's producing in you love with knowledge and discernment that's real and depth and profound. And it's going to lead you to what's really good about life so you can see the difference between the stuff that matters and the stuff that doesn't. And as you get that, it's going to produce in your life righteousness and godliness that's evident. And people will see it and go, thank God for what he has done in them. That's the goal. That's the goal, is that you would become beautiful so that God would be praised. That's what the book of Philippians is really about. I started with that account of Derek Redmond. Have you ever heard of Team Hoyt? Uh, Dick Hoyt had a son, Rick, who was born with cerebral palsy. And uh, at age 15, uh, um, the son, Rick, I knew of a, an acquaintance in their neighborhood, in their town, who had um, become paralyzed. And they were going to do a, he was a lacrosse player, and they wanted to do a benefit for the family that was going to be a, a race where people would give money to go and be part of the race, and the money be raised for the family. And uh, Rick said, let's do it, Dad. Now, Rick has cerebral palsy. He can't run. So the only way that was going to work is, is for his dad to push him in the wheelchair for the 5K. And his dad, who was 36 at the time, gave it a shot. And it was, it was tough. It was, it was really hard to do. But uh, when it was over, here's what Rick said. Rick from his wheelchair said, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. Well, you know, the, the skeptic in me says, wait, who was running? So the 15-year-old would go to school his dad would put a, a sack of cement in a chair and run with it to train. Uh, since that day, in 1977, Team Hoyt have competed in 1,108 endurance events as of April 2014. 
72 marathons, six Ironman triathlons. The father gets a rope and a little boat and he pulls his son through the water and then gets out and they have a chair attached to a bicycle and his son rides in it and his father carries him along. And then they have a special wheelchair made so he can run with them the length of a marathon after having swam like two miles and biked over a hundred. They biked across America together. 3,000 plus miles. Because the father says to his son, I want you to feel like you've completed it. I want you to get to the end. You feel like you don't have a handicap when we're running. Well, then let's run. And I want you to hear the Father in Heaven say to you, because after all, this is Paul praying. It's not just you producing. It's the Father. it's, It's Paul praying. Produce in them love with knowledge and discernment that leads them to know what is really excellent. And then make that excellence produce in them godliness. And then make that godliness lead to praise and glory so that they feel like they belong to you. So that they know your affections. So that they enjoy you forever. To the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're thankful for your affection for us that was embodied in the Apostle Paul. I pray you would help um, elders and pastors and deacons embody it here. But above all, would you produce in us love with knowledge and discernment that leads toward knowing what is excellent and improving it and practicing it toward godliness so that many will give thanks for what they see going on here at First Pres because it's you producing it. Would you be the center of all that you do in our lives and we would see it and be thankful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.